Hey. Bonjour. Hi. Ciao. Hola. Okay. Thanks for joining us for You Sow What You Hope to Reap. We are so glad you're here. Yes, yes we are. Okay, so this is our last... No, wait, I have to introduce you. Um, I even wrote down my word ahead of time. So, ladies and gentlemen, sitting right over there is the inquisitive Jen Scott. I like that. And sitting across from me is the fabulous Elena Mormon. You are fat. You actually look fantastic today. It's amazing. You put on lipstick and everybody just thinks you have your shit together. <laughs> well, you look great. You look great. All right. Well, this is our last episode, uh, pre-winter break. Um, and if you didn't know that we dropped a bonus episode last week and I had a couple students come up to me and say, bonus episode, I thought it was going to be short and it was 40 minutes. And I kind of looked at them like, you can't give me a time limit or give us a time limit to talk about the patriarchy. No, you're right. So, so we have another bonus episode that we pre-recorded that will drop sometime the beginning of January, we figure. And then our next full episode will be out um, Wednesday, January 10th or Wednesday, January 17th. We're not quite sure. Uh, it's our first week back as teachers after the winter break. And I guess it kind of depends on how frazzled we are. That's right. Hopefully we're not too frazzled. Oh. Winter break is like a break because I can mark at home in my pajamas. <laughs> I also, I like having the last day of school closer to Christmas because then you actually have a break after New Year's. Yeah, totally. So if you like wanted to, after the Christmas hustle and bustle, go and like do something before returning back to work, you actually have time to do it. I like that. Okay, so episode two is chapter two and the title of the chapter is hashtag persist. Mm-hmm. It's like the Jimmy Fallon, Justin Timberlake, like hashtag thing that they do with like your pointer finger and your middle finger on both hands. You like put them together and you're like, hashtag. I like that. Yeah. If you could see us, you would laugh. That's right. <laughs> All right. So this segment, the book report is basically where we go through the highlights of the chapter before we get into the burn after reading. So did you want to go first, my friend? Well, I think or do we go back I think you need to go first because you talked about, mm. I think you do need to go first. Okay. All right. One of the first things brought up in the chapter, uh, which was the entire chapter was really a continuation from the previous chapter, which I really appreciated. Uh, but they give a definition for, uh, quote, the monitor, which is a part of your brain that when you're, when you've set a goal or you're working towards a goal, it can switch from attainable to unattainable. So it kind of reminded me of the freeze response that we talked about in our previous episode where your brain kind of just decides no. Right. Um, in that piece where they talk about the monitor, I really liked um, how they discuss that positive reappraisal. So when you're in that freeze response, which is those um, 
stressors that you can't handle in the moment, there are ways to avoid those. And positive reappraisal was one of the things that they talked about. So it's reframing your situation so that instead of being a problem, it's actually an opportunity. Yeah, that's the one that I really like, the seeing difficulties as opportunities, which is totally like a mind bend. Yeah. It felt paradoxical. Like, I didn't. Difficult shouldn't be an opportunity, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get on board. I didn't think you were going to say bend there. What did you, oh, I edited it. <laughs> Good job. Good job. <laughs> uh, yes, so that, I, I actually feel like I do that sometimes too. Edit? Or no, well. <laughs> Yeah, I edit a lot. Or but see the, see yeah. The as opportunities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think in a way, I, yeah, I could see that. I think in a way I do, but like, again, it's so weird how it like puts into these very approachable, easy to read, easy to understand terms in the book, but at the same time, um, it's, I didn't think there was a name for what you did, so it still gives you like a bar to rise. Right, and I like that they have a term for it. Uh, they do talk about, I can't remember if you were going to talk about this, the, uh, uh, what do they call it? The planning, the pre-planning thing. Oh. Planful problem solving. Planful problem solving. Right, yeah. so... So you planfully solve problems rather than just, oh my gosh, this is a problem, I have to deal with it. So I, I liked how they talked about planful problem solving. We'll get into that a little bit hmm. later on. Um, the section on redefining winning, so what a win looks like and redefining failure, but it wasn't cheesy. So we just realized that our Mike's situation was horrendous. <laughs> yeah, so we switched things up and uh, we're just going to continue on as if nothing changed. That's right. And hopefully we both sound better to you now. Mm. Okay, so you, oh yeah, redefining winning. So I really liked in there they talked about um, kind of a different method for goal setting because we talk a lot about goal setting, but yes. I, I liked their, it's a simple description that your goal should be soon, certain, positive, concrete, specific, and personal. And I think we'll talk about that later on as well. But I, I like that rather than like a SMART goal, you know, or other types of goals. I just feel like it it spoke to me more than I, a SMART goal did. I, I agree. And I like that this chapter was had like really good takeaways, like either charts that you could fill out or questions to answer or graphs. It was very much geared towards that growth as, as an individual when you're really taking those those questions and, and turning inward with them, which I appreciated. Very much. And they finished off that section with, um, you know, redefining failure, actually, mm -hmm. too. And I really like they say that there's more to success than, than winning. And yes. so seeing, again, seeing things as opportunities rather than than failures or, or missed opportunities. Yeah, it, it, it took... I feel like it took that po a positive or like almost optimistic look, but without being like cheesy or, or selling us something that was not attainable, which is usually where you lose me when it feels too overly like cute. I agree. And they, they talk about that, I think, in the next section, right? What was the next part? Um, is that the, the, when to, the when to quit? When to quit, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the when to quit. I, 
I was shocked when I got to that, this particular section, because usually that's not part of a conversation. It's how do you keep going? How do you keep going? But this acknowledgement of when you've hit a point where it's enough Mm -hmm. and making it a conscious choice instead of like letting the task beat you, you are actively choosing when you need to step away. And I appreciated that felt like a breath of fresh air. I appreciated that. It really did. I think that, and it, you know, it's about giving yourself permission to stop when you need to stop. Yeah. And then having the capacity to recognize. I, mm-hmm. I like that they provide those four lists. Yes, I agree. The, the the whole chapter, I feel like so many things take away and oh, I found a workbook. For this? For this. I actually like, I, I ordered it. So I wonder if it has. I hope so. Okay. So I ordered it when Amazon delivers it, I will bring it and then we can start looking at that. And it was honestly this chapter that inspired like, there's yes. gotta be something with what we did with Brene Brown and the workbook. Mm-hmm. I feel like that really fleshed out so many of the conversations we were having. Okay. I'm going to order the workbook too. Cause in the margins I have like, need to make a printable version of this. I, I, what I was right. I made a note for myself too. That okay. like go to Canva, make pretty versions. Yes. <laughs> See, I would have used your pretty Canva version. I just yeah. used Word or something. That's oh. Okay, and then the chapter ended. Am I, are we okay to do end of chapter? Yeah, yeah. With a review of where the quote "nevertheless she persisted" originated. So we got like the backstory, and I feel like I've seen this phrase "nevertheless she persisted" or hashtag "she persisted" all over. Um, t-shirts and sweaters and and different um, like clothing items and in particular I'll do a little shout out for the Spark Company they're a company out of the UK I've ordered from them before it's actually where part of the idea for on Wednesdays we smash the patriarchy came from because they have t-shirts that say on Wednesdays we smash the patriarchy beautiful there's a holiday one and it says slay like s-l-e-i-g-h the patriarchy Patriarchy. and there's a bunch of like reindeer on it so cute (laughs) I know. No, I don't have it yet. yet. I'm hoping. But that backstory and the story of Elizabeth Warren really ties into our bonus episode about those patriarchal structures that sometimes we live under. And um, I think I would very much like to get into that later when we do our burn after reading. Perfect. Yeah. So basically, yeah, the book was about, or sorry, the book, the chapter was about, excuse me, how can you deal with the freeze response? Mm -hmm. Some tangible things. Um, planful problem solving, which is like managing your monitor's ability to be able to handle those situations. Um, and then giving yourself permission to give up and how do you know when you give up or quit? And then um, listening to your inner voice, I think, was good. Yeah, I, that's actually, I'm glad you said that. That's a really, I think, kind of an understated mm-hmm. part of the chapter was was listening to yourself and kind of negating some of what the outside tells you. Yeah, but I just had a, another thought. Hmm. So what is your inner voice telling you? When? Anytime. So what if your inner voice is telling you you can't quit because you're a failure if you do? You oh my God, to... that's what my inner voice sounds like. <laughs> but my inner voice, I think I'm aware, is very much affected by my depression. But knowing, like, or sorry, not knowing that. Right. Or before I was diagnosed, before I knew I had depression, that would feel like a very legitimate, authentic voice that I would have to listen to. Because it's like that whole Jiminy Cricket, 
like your conscience, let your conscience be your guide. Well, that's what my inner voice is. It's supposed to tell me what I'm, what my path is. Right. But that path is like, you're terrible. You should harm yourself. And like, how many people listen to that voice without realizing that's not what your inner voice is supposed to sound like. Right. Yeah. You need to have, yeah, you need to recognize when your inner voice is appropriate and inappropriate. Do you know, all I can think of right now is the little angels on Kronk's shoulders. <gasps> you know those guys? Yeah. Hey, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> hey, look at that guy. <laughs> he wants to take you to a place that's righteous. I want to take you to a place that rocks. <laughs> I love that movie. Kate, Jen and I have like... Not that we our love needed to be rekindled, but I think rekindled a little bit over our profound love for the Emperor's New Groove. Yes, it's it's one of my favorite movies. One of the single best one liner like yeah. pull out quotes that um, that I I've ever watched. I know it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah, look at us with our recommendations. Look at us, <laughs> little recommendations yeah. corner. Watch some movies, read some books. Yeah. Okay, so. Let's talk about our burns. Burns from this chapter. Um, the very opening of the chapter is a story about the member Sophie, the non-exerciser. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, I believe that Sophie has been asked to be like kind of the he- the head of an anti-racist committee at her school because she's a black woman or school or wherever it is that she yes works. yes. So. Amelia says to her, what's wrong with them? Isn't it obvious that putting people of color in charge of helping white people learn how not to be racist is just more white supremacy? (laughs) White people are the ones with the problem. We should be doing the work, not putting more labor demands on black and brown people. Mm -hmm. And that got me thinking, because I think I've seen this several times. Yes. So my question was, I wonder if people, and especially white people, especially in today's uh, context where we are doing important work, I think, as an entire society to be more accepting of other people, less yeah. racist, all of those things. Um, I wonder if they're actually genuinely uncomfortable with that learning process because they don't, they're scared to make mistakes or they, they don't have the background knowledge, right? You think about when we talked about the patriarchy mm-hmm. and all these ideas that are supposed to be just ingrained and people are just supposed to follow them, right? right? Yes. And now we're starting to question those things. Um, if people are like genuinely afraid to admit that they don't know how to do that learning. Well, it's, you're essentially subverting an entire belief system like you're taking like this is my understanding of the world or conceptualization of the world that I live in because inherently we're selfish beings so it's always from our own perspective for someone outside of ourselves I think to come and say well actually you're wrong those feelings of shame which for so many people and this kind of goes back to what we said in our last episode so many people will feel shame, but in a lot of ways it comes out as anger, especially when you have been conditioned by society, like many men are, to to not outwardly show that that shame because that's too vulnerable of an emotion. So yeah. you come at it with anger or aggression, and that just becomes part of the process. Shame equals anger all the way through your life. So that quickly, I think, turns into a refusal Yeah. to like not, I don't want to change, I don't need my eyes open to this, because we so want to believe that I think we're doing the right thing. Yeah. And I think when when we started 
our what started as an anti-racism, anti-oppression committee at the school, um, hyper aware of my whiteness, I, I know I made mistakes along the way. And I look back at my life and growing up in Southern Alberta and it was uncomfortable to confront some of those mindsets that I had not questioned up until this point and then the embarrassment that comes from finally questioning. Um, but you really have to be in the right place to do that kind of self-reflection. And it's, it's scary. And I think when you're used to self-reflection, like when your therapist insists monthly or bi-monthly that you have to self-reflect, it's easier to take that step. But when you're not being pushed to that on a regular basis, I see that as like an almost insurmountable wall. Not that there's not hope, but I, I completely understand why it's difficult. I'm just in awe of all the things you said right now. <laughs> Thank you. Like you just conceptualized that perfectly. With a metaphor. I even have a little tear. Do you see oh, it? I d- oh, listeners, there is a legitimate, oh, Jen. It's beautiful. You're, you're so right. I think it is. It's, it is. It does feel insurmountable. I, I can't even add to that. Oh, I stole your thunder. That's good. I love it. <laughs> love it all right what was one of your burns okay so the thing that jumped out to me is actually the opposite of a wall it was the (laughs) um that a simple goal when you're trying to to accomplish a simple goal and and you and you fail can very quickly push you into they refer to it as the pit of despair Mm -hmm. which i feel like is a princess bride reference could be yeah. yeah there's like the cliffs of insanity the pit of despair the shrieking shack that might be harry potter i, I don't know <laughs> anyway <laughs> but it's that it's the goes back to the monitor of deciding whether a task is attainable or unattainable if it switches to unattainable you do you sit in this pit of despair and and it's that's a pit that i'm very familiar with like I I know that pit I know exactly where that pit is it's in the corner of my bathroom squeezed in between a wall and my shower wall where I feel completely like condensed and and it's like that self-hug technique but instead you squish yourself into like a tight space so that you feel like held and that's working your way through what would be like a panic right situation so but it made me think one of the the we have the three F's, the freeze, fight, flight, flight, seriously, abstinence, abstinence, and a little bit sprinkled with a little bit of alliteration as well. Okay. So fight, flight, freeze, freeze. Those are the three we covered. There's a fourth one. I'm so sorry. There's a fourth one, which is fawn, like fawn as in like a deer fawn baby for those of you who don't. Um, we're trying to figure out what a fawn is. Mm-hmm. Um, that pit of despair made me think it's that it's where we give up. It's where we basically lay down to just take whatever comes because we've completely given up at that point. And it's not the same as freeze where like you, you necessarily like right. are forced stop. It's a, a completely self-aware place. Right. Like an acceptance. An acceptance <clears throat> that I will lay here and let the lions come kind yeah. of thing. Um, and that, that the two, the pit of despair and the fawn um, resonated with me as the same thing. Um, hmm. And part of the fawn response is feeling really alone. 
So even when you said like, what if that inner voice is not something that you can trust? There's no other option yeah. in the pit. There are no other voices besides your own. And the really lovely thing about pits is that that voice echoes. So not only do you hear it from like a singular vantage point, it's coming at you kind of from all angles. So it becomes this like over overwhelming negative space. But it also made me think about why it's so important that we attempt to show vulnerability and to talk about these, like this is like personal. Mm -hmm. This is like, I don't know, this is not a space in my life that I usually talk to many people about, but I think that's the purpose of the podcast. Yeah. Is, I know if I heard someone talk about their pit of despair against their bathroom wall, <laughs> it would make me feel a little less alone. And right. that's the hope is that is that someone listening or a listener tells a friend who tells someone else that like, oh, I know someone else who experiences that. Because in those moments... You are alone and you have to weed through by yourself. But knowing after it's done, when the storm calms, that there's someone who's actually been through the same thing as yeah. you. And some of reading this chapter was, oh my gosh, other people do that? Yeah. Or like that, that's something that I thought I just experienced, that that I was kind of alone in that. So it was, I don't know, I came out of it with a more positive, hopefully, mindset and, and a reassurance that there is a, a, a positive to maybe unwrapping some of our, our vulnerabilities and showing them to people in a, in a safe, trusting situation, of course. I totally agree. Like, I think we are conditioned that any, you know, don't show weakness, don't share your problems, mm-hmm. your problems are no one else's business. And so we do have a very, a very real feeling that we are alone in that pit um and i think a lot of people are scared to communicate what's in that pit right but if you find someone safe to do it with you should i mean humans are social creatures and we are we are supposed to experience emotions and feelings in order to help us get out of those pits Mm -hmm. right And, and just allowing yourself to feel that and and share it with someone else who can empathize with you is very important. I I agree. And that's I'm grateful for you and mm-hmm. I'm grateful for even to some of the women in our life and some of our friends who we show up for each other. Yeah. And I I think that's pretty pretty amazing. And that's yes. where the gratitude comes in and I feel like I get all emotional, but that was my um that was one of my burns is the pit of despair. That's a good one. Thank you for sharing that, Delina. Yeah. Um, I, I liked the, I really did like that positive reappraisal thing. Mm. Um, like the reframing of those difficulties and turning them into, uh, opportunities for growth and learning because uh, like, I really do not like, I, I look at it in terms of like, I like this term positive reappraisal versus what I think is toxic positivity. Okay, yes. Because I, I think a lot about, you know, uh, be positive, stay optimistic. When it rains, look for rainbows. When it's dark, <laughs> look for stars. Like, all that stuff. And, you know, they talk about that book, Eight Things Happy People Do Differently. 
And it includes some of those things. Like in order to be happy, you have to express gratitude and you have to keep a clean house, like all that stuff. And sure, that's probably true, but it just really diminishes the... The struggle. The, not only the struggle, but like the actual value of those feelings that you're having, right? Yeah. Because if you're just supposed to stay positive, well, what if something bad happens, right? Okay, so I'm supposed to stay positive, but I'm stuck behind this train for 20 minutes. My life is ruined. You know what I mean? Yep. Like it just feels... Yeah. So they talk about training your monitor to be prepared for those situations. And I really like that they say you just frame it as an opportunity for learning. Because mm-hmm. if I'm stuck behind a train, yes, if I'm late, I, I could get upset, but there's really nothing that I can do about it. So I don't know, count the train cars, whatever it is that you're going to do. Mm-hmm. But if nothing else, just exercise a little bit of patience, right? Yes. Let, get, take that as a moment to clear your mind of all the things that are going on up there. Um, so I really like that. And I think I actually do that sometimes. Um, I, my dad, I believe taught that to me, like, if you can't do what you want to do, what can you do? And I really distinctly remember I was writing a test in high school. I don't know what the test was on, but I got to some questions and I had no clue what to do. Mm -hmm. And I could have just sat there and got anxious and not completed the test but instead I was like you know what all I can do is write down what I know so I might as well look at the rest of the test and write down what I know right and then come back to this at the end and I still hear my dad's voice in my head saying that right if you don't know what you can do just do what you can do and I use that a lot in in my class now too not in my dad's voice but Yeah. yeah like if you get stuck it's not like there's other things that you can do Right. Well, and how many students right now do we have who are out sick, mm-hmm. who are coming back? And whatever illness is plaguing y'all right now is yeah. a doozy. Like, kids gone for a week at a time. Yeah. That's where we have this amazing opportunity as teachers to not, to forget about our schedules mm-hmm. and, and things and say, there was nothing you could do during that time, so let's figure out where to go from here. Yeah. Like, we can't change it. It's out of our control. What What can we do now? And I think... That that is what we need as people. Like as teachers, we need that grace. And I think to give that to our students too is is so important. I had a student that I talked to today. His his sweet face was very very stressed about being gone for a week and was really really sick. And I think it was like a relief when I was like, oh no no, like we can yeah. we can handle that because I think you know the, well. There's times where that rigor is is very yeah. important to our courses. It doesn't mean it's all the time. Yeah. So so yeah, getting to see those as opportunities, I'm I'm on board. I like I really enjoyed that one as well. Yeah. Okay. Do you have another one? Oh yeah. This okay. is this was the one that like burned, scalded up until the, even this morning when I was like thinking oh. about it. I was like, I just I can't wait to talk about this one. Yeah, but it also like I I get really like I get really fired up about this one, but in a yeah. Okay. You know what? I'll just, I'll stop prefacing. Okay. okay. So planful problem solving. And they mention talking about how women are socialized for planful problem solving. So I think the example they give is, is all of the like checklists that run through your head during the day and you're juggling multiple different, different things at any given time. 
I understood this concept as what is called the mental load. I've also heard it referred to as worry work or cognitive labor. Okay. So basically, and I went and looked it up. So the American Sociological Review defines the mental load as anticipating needs, identifying options for filling them, making decisions, and monitoring progress. So it's not just, I made dinner tonight. Right. It's planning the dinner, buying the groceries, making the dinner, ensuring that everyone eats what they want, worrying about food groups and health and time for eating because so-and-so has this sports. Yep. Many times that ends up falling on the woman in a relationship. I did see one little quote that I'll add just so that we're not, I'm not taking a completely feminist perspective, despite the fact that most of the data shows that this is a byproduct of yep. a patriarchal structure. Even in households where chores are split pretty evenly, and this is in mm. a in a heteronormative um, relationship, often one of those people ends up doing the mo most or the majority of the thinking work. Yeah, and nine in I, two different statistics: nine out of ten couples, the woman feels the mental load. Mm -hmm. Or another statistic saw 72% of couples, the the woman, the female partner, feels that mental load. And this is when they do approximately equal work. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's all of the excess stuff. And it's right. interesting because trying to explain this to someone who doesn't realize that it's not just the doing of the tasks. It's the overseeing of everything, of mm -hmm. running this household is is an incredibly frustrating conversation to have and it interestingly goes back to what you said at the beginning is there that wall there of not wanting to grow past it because if you feel as a partner in a relationship that you are doing equal work you don't want to be convinced that you're not yeah right so i i completely understand that wall but as the female partner in a relationship, I, I feel like the mental load is what actually causes the majority of my burnout and my exhaustion is trying to juggle all of the pieces. It was organizing the photo shoot for family pictures, then ordering those pictures to make Christmas cards, but making sure to double check with everybody that they liked the picture that they liked and to get back those like, oh yeah, like whatever you want. But trying to be so conscious of everyone else's needs is is a weight. That's a huge weight. That, that we carry. Yeah. It's not a tangible weight. And I think that's why it's so difficult to explain. It's, again, it's not just the like, I made dinner. It's all of the things that go into you worried about basically the context of, of the situation, which is so much harder to put into words and to identify because so much of it is a thought process. Agreed. And how do you... You can't force another person to have a particular thought process. And again, exposing them to the the idea of a mental load is subverting a mindset that, no, no, we balanced our the yeah. chores, the chores in the house equally. Yeah, that invisible labor piece is very Ooh, difficult yeah. to tackle. Invisible labor. So it's interesting, whatever side of TikTok I'm on, I was on the capybara side of TikTok for a long time and I very much miss it. There was a simpler time. I don't know On what the, that means. Oh, it's, it, I know what a capybara is. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's okay. more like the algorithm will feed you um, posts based on which ones you like or interact with the most. So, so you used to see cute animals. Yeah, now I'm in a very... It's interesting that maybe it goes along with the starting of reading this book. What I'm seeing is lots of posts and lots of 
responses to, and it, it's become a joke of husbands not being able to find things. Ah. And so there's a bunch of jokes about how like, well, you know, like look behind that or just move the ketchup bottle out of the way and you'll find the plum sauce bottle or whatever it is. And really kind of making a joke out of the fact that even someone asking that question, honey, where is this? Or like, can you help me find this? Or I don't know how to do mm. this. That's an additional mental load because yeah. now I'm responsible for helping you understand something that if we were actually equal, you wouldn't have to ask me for help with. Right. And then, and that's not, that's not the same as working together as like a partner. It's, it's just a lack of awareness without realizing there's a lack of awareness. Right. And then, like you said, sometimes it's too difficult to explain. So it's easier to just do it anyway. That, that phrase, I'll just do it anyway. I feel like that is the mental load in, in a nutshell is that it's just easier because in that implies that you've never had to think about this and yet I have. So it's easier for me to just do it rather than explain. It, it goes yeah. with another one of the trends is, is kind of making light of, but, but definitely like, no, don't say this, that let me know if you need any help. And it, what right. it does is it, it creates a kind of, I saw this, this um, parallel or analogy that it creates a manager and employee dynamic yeah. as opposed to a partnership. A partnership yeah. When they have to come to you for how do you do this or where is this, it feels like you're having to give instruction or guidance when you're in a partnership. Right. And it, it makes it feel, for me, I end up feeling stuck and I'll ask myself this, like, have I become a, a housewife? Because that's, that's not how I see myself. Right. And yet, there are certain things that, that it feels like when I know, you know, things about the laundry or loading the dishwasher or where stuff is organized, basically like the layout of the house and a lot of the way things are organized, it, it feels like that onus is then on me. And then I feel directly responsible when the kids make a mess or, or something is out of place, I will take responsibility for that, whether or not it's actually my, my doing. Right. So it's, um, that, this is where like the, (laughs) an extended burn, it's something I've thought about a lot, lot. but in the sense that how do we make this a conversation that, that couples can have without it seeming like we're placing blame and that's always such a hard how do we do this without being defensive yeah how do we do this without placing blame but genuinely being able to say to your partner hey I feel overwhelmed with things that you don't even know I'm doing and I would really like a safe place to be able to talk to you about that but I don't know what that conversation looks like that's I think what I'm actively searching for this is like a post, it's going to be a post discussion burn for me. Okay. Yeah. <gasps> Bonus episode. Bonus episode. <laughs> okay, you go. What was I your next burn? Those things down. Okay, so my next burn, I, I feel bad even going away from that one. No, I think, I think it's good because I dwell on it all the time. So it's okay. totally fine. We can come back to it another time. All right. Um, my next burn was uh, talking again about that positive. Re- reappraisal mm, um, yes and they say that it works because it's actually genuinely true that difficulties are opportunities yes and I think about this in my like teaching right mm. learning a new concept 
always comes with difficulty and it always is a learning opportunity, right? And they talk specifically about some teaching contexts here. So they said students whose assigned reading is typed in an ugly, difficult to read font remember more than they read in the short term and score higher on exams in the longer term than those whose materials are more legible. And I, I wrote what the heck so like, all, of, all of our true? super organized students with their color coding and highlighting just fainted. Like, we've lost all of them. Totally. Well, I even tell my kids, like, make sure you write. Like, if you write really small in a nice font, like, yeah. you'll remember it better. And maybe maybe it's not true. But what's all, there's, like, a whole science behind the Cornell note-taking method. Yeah. Like, you can buy pads of paper yeah. that, are, that are divided up for this Cornell note-taking method. Yeah. And, and, I mean... Andy from the office would absolutely give this his stamp of approval mm -hmm. being that he is from, or he's an alumni of Cornell. Cornell yeah. But what about the science behind that? I feel like that's in direct contrast. Wait, so so I, I'm, that made me very curious. I want to try it. Okay. Like I want to use a font that we're not, that we don't usually use. If you use papyrus, I will be forever angry. <laughs> okay. I won't use papyrus. Thank you. I'll stay away from that one. But I wonder if it's true. Like that, I don't know about that. I'm curious. I, I'm, I'm very curious to see. You made a hypothesis. You were going to test your... Yeah, I'm going to test my hypothesis. I'll okay. let you know how it goes. I, my my uh, guess is that the students are going to be quite upset with me. <laughs> but we'll see. Tell them, but it's science. I actually... Or a scientific process in the very least. I, I will tell that. And it is a science class that I teach, so it's fine. But I mean... Now that I think about it, when I when I tell them when they're doing their review notes to you know practice their writing and make it yeah. pretty, they are having to do more work in processing anyway. So maybe mm -hmm. they do. Maybe it works in the same way. Because if they're reading something in a difficult font, they have to work harder to interpret it. Right. Yes. And if they're writing it in a pretty font, they also have to work harder to communicate it. As opposed to just like a like typing it out where you right. don't necessarily have to. Maybe it's the. I talk to my students a lot about how, like, there's a, there is a connection between your writing hand and your brain. So your ability to put pencil to paper, and that's, we talk about free writing in English language yeah. arts, that that idea of not lifting up your pen is because there's that direct connection, is, is slightly more authentic or more memorable or more meaningful or mm -hmm. however you want to adjective that. <laughs> <laughs> However you want to adjective it. <laughs> I just made an adjective a verb. That's good. Um, Kate, there's this post that I saw that was talking about the scientific process where okay. it's like, you know, you 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 affect change and then you look at the effects of okay. that change. Okay. But they framed it as fuck around and find out. Is the... I was looking at that. <laughs> I laughed so hard. Thank you. I did too. I was like, this is great. Not a school appropriate t-shirt. Not at all. Not at all. Since we love making, <laughs> proposing making t-shirts, but maybe an out of work t-shirt. Maybe option. an out of work t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. That was pretty funny actually. Okay. But that's not really what it is. It's purposeful. The scientific process You're, is purposeful. Yes. I wasn't trying to negate what I know is a very important It's not process. all guess and check kids. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, I just wanted to add one thing to, to, your, uh, to your point about okay. the like difficulties as opportunities yes. and that kind of, there was a video that I used to show students that was about a lobster shedding its, its shell okay. as a, um, 
Oh my gosh, I can't think of what it's called. It is a arachnid. Lobsters, scorpions, spiders, arachnids, exoskeleton. So they shed when they grow. Okay. So it was a video of a lobster shedding its skin and regrowing and that that entire process is actually really uncomfortable for the lobster to shed its skin and, and regrow. And it's this idea of shedding away a previous version of yourself and growing into this new version of yourself because the old version doesn't fit anymore. Oh. But that those opportunities are going to be uncomfortable. That if you're experiencing discomfort in your growth journey. That's okay. It That's it's supposed to be part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I just, whenever I think of discomfort during growth, I think of lobsters. I like that. Thank you. I'll well, send you the video. Lobsters or crustaceans? But are they also arachnids? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, they have eight legs. Yeah. Maybe they are crusty. You're right. Why am I... You would know. I don't know. I default to you, my well, dear friend. I don't know. I have to look that up. Now I'm confused too. <laughs> okay. I don't teach biology. But like you're incredibly intelligent. So yeah, that's why I default to you. You're also incredibly intelligent. <laughs> okay. They're this Is it mine or yours? Where are we? We just talked about you added to my burn, so I think it's yours now. Oh okay. Try. Roger that. Um I really liked, and this one I thought about a little bit too, not as long as I thought about the other one, but we're taught that letting go of a goal is failure. Yes. Yes. And this is what I want to talk about too. Oh, good. Okay. We had the same burn. So at any point in your life, you're not just going after a singular goal. So much of our lives is multiple goals. So you're juggling multiple goals and feeling like it's impossible to succeed and immediately we turn that into, well, there's something wrong with me. Yeah. It's not that I'm juggling too many things or that the circumstances of the said juggling are not ideal or all of the other factors that influence the success of attaining a goal. No, no, it has to be my fault. Yeah. And I think that relates to our conversation about the mental load when things in in our, what we take care of, the things that we look after, when those things start failing or falling apart, we immediately take that as a failure. On our part. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I guess, so when do you ask for help? Well, that's another thing. That was my, mm. they talk about when to ask for help here. Yes. But with the goals, they said, how do you know, like, how do you know when you do need to give up on a goal? And they suggest you make four lists. So you have to actually write write down what you th in these lists. And in the a messy font. In a messy yes, a messy font. Yeah. Um, the lists are this. What are the benefits of continuing? What are the benefits of stopping? What are the costs of continuing? And what are the costs of stopping? It took me an embarrassingly long time to figure out that it's basically a pro-con list. Yes. But a very directed yes. kind of pro-con list. So when I, uh, a long time ago, I, when my, like my brain was broken, I had to decide if I was going to continue coaching or not. Okay. So I basically did, I basically did this, but I did it as a pro-con list. And I happened to be working on my master's at the same time. And I was talking to one of my professors and 
I was like, these are all things that are going on. Like, I realize I have to do these things, but I also have to make a decision about this. And, and he sat me down and he said, okay, we'll make a list of pros and cons, mm -hmm. but look at them in terms of like immediately and long-term. And then I turned the page in the book and the list is ah. benefits immediate, benefits longer term. So I'm like, this would have been so much easier to just have this freaking table here. <laughs> Which is why I wanted to make a print. The table that Jen, yeah, literally wrote, need to make a printable version of this beside. Right. Yeah. Because then you can think about, okay, so immediately this is a benefit or this is a cost. Mm -hmm. But longer term, what does it look like? And so I really distinctly remember going through that process um, about whether to stop coaching. And this was actually way prior to COVID. So this was like in 2000 and I don't know, 15 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and ultimately, I decided that I should continue coaching because of the long-term benefits. Yeah. Yeah, so even though there were some, you know, short-term benefits to quitting, and even some long-term benefits to quitting, the, the ones to, to continuing to coach far outweighed it. And so at that, at that time, I did decide to continue, and I was, I'm so happy that I did because I ended up having the best coaching years of my life. I coached the best team I ever coached, and I got to build some really good relationships with some people that I wouldn't have otherwise. So that's a, and to actually have the outcome that showed you that you went through the right process. Yeah. I feel like it almost almost flies in the face a little bit of this whole like trust your gut. Mhm. Mm, yes, obviously. If you're talking to a strange man and you feel uncomfortable, <laughs> you walk away from that strange man because all That's of your right. instincts as a woman are telling you, danger, 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 walk away. Cover your beer and walk away. That's right. Cover your beer and walk away. <laughs> but in certain situations where there are short and long-term consequences or costs or benefits, yep. you almost need a, a logical, but logic with emotion attached approach because right. the chart is the logical part. The emotion is how you feel about what these benefits and and costs, costs are. are. Yeah, it's and I, then the, the going through with it afterwards is so much more meaningful. Yes, and it, you're like you're purposefully directed, right? Rather mm -hmm. than just like I made a decision to do this, and so I'm going to do it. Yeah, right. Instead of like you know kind of falling into it, which reminds me, mm. um, this weekend I went away with some friends. Uh, we went and saw a musical. It's called All Is Calm. It was about the... the tr this is a complete sidebar. But it was about the, the Christmas Day truce in the First World War in 1914. Where oh. the, the Allies... The, well, the Germans and the British came out of the trenches and they started singing Christmas carols together. Oh, my God. Oh, it was so beautiful, Elena. Like, there was many tears. It was so beautiful. Wow. Yeah. I would tell you to all go buy tickets, but they're all sold out for the rest of the shows. It's so good. So, But if you ever get a chance to see All Is Calm, you should go. Anyway, the group of people that I was with are some very dear friends of mine. And um, at dinner, one of my friends asked me, he said, hey, can I ask you something? Are you a goal-oriented person? I was like, I, I guess, I think so. He said, did you always know you were going to be a teacher? And I said, well, I kind of, like, I think I always thought I could be a teacher. He's like... Yeah, that's that's interesting. He said, because you seem pretty laid back to me. He said, well, I know you're laid back. I mean, we're good friends. You don't seem laid back. But anyway, he said, I'm I'm the kind of person that, like, this could happen or this could happen. I kind of go with it. Um, but my wife, on the other hand, is very much like, this is what's going to happen, and 
the goals are set and mm-hmm. you just follow those goals and there's no deviation from it. And I was like, you know, I think that, I think I'm more like this or that could happen. And so then I started thinking about this book. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so is it because I accept that there isn't always, you know, that the mm-hmm. failure could be an opportunity, but also I think it keeps doors open for you, right? Like if, if right. what you have in mind that you're going to do isn't possible right now or at a certain time, there's that doesn't mean there's nothing else to do there's so many more things you can do right and I think just having the ability to accept that that there are other opportunities that you don't necessarily have to follow the same path I think is important it's less rigid yeah yeah and having like a predefined sort of like future Mm -hmm. what are you missing out on if you have a predefined future these are some very deep questions yeah like, I just think about, like, if you, if I had always thought I am going to be a chemistry teacher, okay, let's not, because that's what I am. Uh, what if I had always thought, like, I am going to be a veterinarian? Mm. What if I, I didn't allow myself to explore this teaching path? Hmm. I wouldn't, I never would have met you. Oh. Right? Are you trying to hurt me? <laughs> no, I'm not, but I'm just no, saying. No, I, like, I, I, I. I I like to think, and maybe this is way too kitschy and whatever, that well, I've known since I was, my mom, Doris claims and will claim to anyone who asks her that I knew I was going to be a teacher by grade two. I set up a classroom in my basement. My dad set up, like I had little chairs that he bought me like this beautiful chalkboard and I taught the stuffed animals the things that they needed to know. Perfect. And so she will tell anyone from grade two, Elena knew that she was going to be a teacher And I didn't really deter from the goal, so to speak, but I, in a way I kind of followed what felt was the best expression of who I was. Okay. So I went into university as a biology major, realized that I didn't feel like me. There was no authenticity in that bio major. So I I sought out the next most authentic thing, which is actually what landed me in English language arts. And then I took that journey out to Victoria because I don't know if there's a more authentic me than a me with my feet in the sand sitting next to my soulmate, um, listening to the sound of the ocean and probably listening to Holland Oats. Like that's, that's the most authentic version of me. I love that. So it's, while I did have that like goal, it was. I think it wasn't quite as rigid as maybe I realized it was. Because right. I, when I talk to my godmother, she'll say, Elena, you knew what you wanted and you just went for it. But I think it's because I like to think that I had more control over it than that, that I took those opportunities that were given to me and and explored them, like tried different jobs, tried different schools, like maybe took a more a less linear path, but right. I still got an outcome that, that felt right to me. And conveniently that outcome just didn't change. Like I, I am still a teacher and that was kind of what I had my goal set the whole time, but I'd never thought about it like that before. Yeah. I always just thought like you're sure to do impossible things. If you follow your heart, like a, a Disney, a Disney mantra of like, I was born to be this but you still allowed the opportunities to flow in, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't like you didn't you didn't recognize that there weren't other opportunities, and so you just dismissed them. You still took advantage of those things. Do you think that's true for you too? Because I can't imagine you. 
not working with kids. There's something so incredible about the way that you connect with your students. They trust you. They like want to follow you. Like that, I don't think that's something you can fake or cultivate. I think that's who you are. Well, I think that's who you are too. Oh my God, is that why we're friends? Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> we should build bunk beds. <laughs> yes. Oh. oh man. I think the only other thing I would have been is a chef. Yes. I love cooking. So I love cooking for people. And, and like an expression yeah. of love. Yeah. yeah. So again, I guess it's kind of the same thing, but. I'm Italian, so that yeah, I agree. That's what I, so I understand food. <laughs> food equals love. Food like that equals love. Yes. Perfect. Okay. Um, do you have another burn? Well, I did have one more burn. Do you have another burn? My last one is the Okay, so persisted. we're going to save that one for last. Okay. So my, my burn was... It was kind of an affirmation, I guess. Mm, okay. So in the She Persisted section, I'm going to read this, this excerpt. It says, The quality of our lives is not measured by the amount of time we spend in a state of perfection. Mm. On the contrary, people of vision think of the principal social justice leaders of the 20th and 21st centuries. Mm-hmm. They see the largest gap between what is and what ought to be, and they know they will not live to see a world that fully achieves their vision of what's possible. A gap between reality and perfection is not abnormal or a sign of dysfunction. It's a normal part of life. And I feel like ever since we started this collaborative, you know, our collaborative community Mm -hmm. and the anti-racism committee, I feel like that's where I've been. Like, I know we very likely won't still be teaching in our school when we see all the benefits of our work. I know, like, maybe we won't even be alive when we see uh, the benefits of smashing the patriarchy. Yeah. But I still think that that I do see that gap, and it's worth fighting to teach people or to inspire people to close it. I I'm 100% agree. I think... That was uh, one of those difficult realizations that we won't see the byproduct of what we're working for, but at the same time, we're not working for it for ourselves. That's right. Like, we'll push and shove here and there a little yeah. bit, smash a little here, smash a little there, but... But it's not just it, for it's us. For, it's for our children, mm-hmm. grandchildren, our students, their children, like, whoever comes next, it's like a passing of the torch, and... Um, I just, I'm excited that we get to hold on to that torch for a little while. And like you said, inspire. That's right. Okay. What was your, what was your big Okay. My last, the the big one. Okay. So the hashtag, nevertheless, she persisted. So a little bit of backstory. Elizabeth Warren, um, who is a Senator from Massachusetts in the U S Senate was reading a letter from a woman who was trying to argue, um, or trying to point out some, basically some very race-based judicial errors by another senator. And she's trying to read this and she is stopped by House Leader Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell actually says to her that, here I have it here. He silenced her when she was reading And afterwards, in like the post-Senate interview, he said she was warned. She was given an explanation. Nevertheless, she persisted because Elizabeth Warren didn't stop when Mitch McConnell asked her to. When she finally did stop and and was forcibly stopped, 
three other male senators continued reading the letter for her and none of them were stopped. So the book um, kind of somewhat tongue in cheek. I wonder why she was stopped and was it the way that she was speaking mm -hmm. or was it this? But we maybe are aware it's something a little bit more than that. So I was thinking about how women persist because we have to. Yep. Because if you are super passionate, you, you'll be labeled as too emotional. If you're frustrated, you get this like, well, how dare you feel frustrated after all that you've been given? Yep. If we are overly confident, we're labeled a bitch. It, yep. It's, we have to persist, persist through it because a lot of the challenges that we as women face are due to this patriarchal structure, this patriarchal order. They talk about how women have often been told, like the She Persisted became this rallying cry for women who were told to sit down and shut up. Yep. And I'll never forget when Donald Trump told LeBron James to shut up and play basketball and the world was in an uproar. How dare this person tell this person yep. to shut up and play basketball? And yet how many times are women told to be quiet, sit down, know our place? Mm -hmm. And and like I, I'd love a little uproar. Maybe this is my uproar. Um, <laughs> and then one of the quotes they include is, we like we can't sit down and shut up. We've got children to feed and a world to change. That's right. I love that. I know. It's a beautiful quote for the It end. really spoke to me. So now I have to go to the Spark Company and order myself. Uh, nevertheless, she persisted because now I, I that reminder of where it came from and why it's important. It is. Okay. It's very important. Okay. Um, toolkit. Do you have something for toolkit? My toolkit looks exactly the same as yours. Oh. Okay, so toolkit. We're finishing the phrase, if people learned this thing, then maybe they'd be more okay. So I said, if people learned they are not alone, then maybe they would be more okay. That's right. Like when you, when you are in that pit to take Elena's burn, when you're in that pit of despair, just know that other people have been there. And as much as it feels like that no one possibly could have been there before. Or understands where you are. Yeah, that you are not alone. And there's definitely somebody that understands, and that's why it's important to know when is the right time to ask for help. Exactly. Okay, um, so in closing, um, whatever you celebrate or however you celebrate, if you have time off, we hope that it is exactly what you need. Yes, we do. Take a break. Take time for yourself. Okay, um, do you have your, your goodbye? Oh, shoot. Um, no, I didn't. I forgot. Okay, do you want to just say bye then? Yeah. Okay, bye. bye.